This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Ryan Hall. And where do I even begin? He is consistently named as one of the most influential people in media and marketing. He co-founded the mobile app development company Nice Agency in 2009 and grew and managed the agency through two acquisitions, first with Karmarama and then to Accenture Interactive. He has built a career transforming how B2B sales is done and how sustainable scaled pipelines are built. We talk about his approach to new business, which is called slow selling, really because the account that changed his fortunes was First Direct, and it took him over four years to land the account. He's built this whole model around it, which is absolutely fascinating. Uh, he now runs the Zeitgeist, a growth consultancy designed to support growing businesses, define their growth strategy, understand their unique value proposition and create a go-to-market strategy. I have to give a shout out to Dan, the agency man, Della Cruz, for the introduction to Ryan. Happy birthday as well to Dan. He really is just a fascinating guy with an amazing career background. I, I could talk about what we talked about, or I could just shut up and say, without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with Ryan Hall. Ryan Hall has built a career transforming how B2B sales is done and how sustainable pipelines are built. Ryan has helped leadership roles in Karamarama, Accenture, and Think, including two successful exits. He also works with a range of B2B businesses and has sold and supported over £100 million worth of deals over his career with a proven track record in creating business value and his unique set of skills. The Zeitgeist work with digital businesses to quickly maximize the potential of their businesses and manage the issues that can come with accelerated growth. He is currently working with Territory Studios, a motion graphics and screen effects company responsible for only the Marvel films, Spider-Man, Ex Machina, Blade Runner, 2049, etc. Just go down the list. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Ryan Hall, welcome to Agency Dealmasters. Thank you very much, Nathan. Real pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for doing it. You, you've had such a fascinating and interesting career that when I was thinking about how to introduce you best, I was really struggling how I should do that. Are you an entrepreneur? Are you an agency owner? Are you a retail specialist? Are you a creative person? Are you a salesman? When people ask you what you do for a living, how do you respond? <laughs> um, probably different, differently every single time, to be honest. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I, I do a few things. I think, you know, the thing that it really comes back to for me is um, probably heart of hearts, I'm a salesperson, um, or as much as I hate the S word, I don't like the word sales. You know, I think I know how to do sales. Um, but the other thing really is I'm quite obsessed about product. Hmm. So the craft, the output, you know, what it is that a business is making. And I think, you know, if you combine those two things, you know, with a bit of sprinkling of some understanding of marketing, you get to growth. And really, I think that's what I'm fascinated about. And, you know, that's really where, you know, my career has shaped itself um, through good luck as much as good management. Really interesting. We were introduced through Daniel De La Cruz, Dan the Agency Man. How how do you know Daniel? It's a good question. Um, doesn't everyone just know him? Isn't he just like, isn't <laughs> right. he like a myth? Appear. He just appeared <laughs> and then everyone knew him? Sure. <laughs> like Jesus. Basically, yeah. <laughs> So take us back to the beginning of your career. You got your degree in marketing management from Northumbria University. What first attracted you to the world of marketing? 
Um, yeah, I mean, I, I only just got my degree, um, if I'm being really honest. <laughs> um, what attracted me to marketing? Well, what attracted me to marketing management? It was the course at Northumbria Uni, uh, which is a great university. They had the least finance in it because um, I <laughs> really, really hate maths. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and to be honest, you know, it was kind of, I kind of fell into it because, you know, going back to GCSEs, um, I didn't really like school very much. Um, mm. I didn't really like learning. Probably something wrong with my brain somewhere, but I just kind of just didn't really pick stuff up very well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I kind of got through my GCSEs, you know, my mum pushed me through and, you know, I got some okay results enough to go to sixth form. And it was the decision between a whole lot of A-levels that I just couldn't see me doing. Mm. And then a, a GNVQ in business. Um, so rather than doing like three A-levels, you just do the GNVQ and it kind of counted for the same um, same amount of kind of points or grades or whatever you want to call it at uni. Um, although it was always kind of looked down upon by the A-level students as um, GNVQ standing for generally not very quick. Um, <laughs> uh, never heard maybe true, before. maybe true, but, you know, <laughs> who, who's laughing now? Who's um, laughing now? Indeed. Who's laughing now, yeah. Yeah, and, really um, interesting. Really, that was kind of the, the turning point for me because the, t the two kind of main tutors in the GNVQ were um, some of the best people I've ever met in my life, and they really cared about you trying to learn and it was infinitely more practical and that just kind of clicked with me straight away mm. and if it wasn't for those two i probably wouldn't have made it to university so you know i, I owe them a lot um bigsy and um, carol Tregonin. you know and they kind of like forced me into marketing management in the nicest possible way and you know it was a bit of an eye-opener at that point you know i was coming from a like a local town in the northeast and kind of living in the big city and you know, that's where it all started, really, you know, kind of really found it relatively straightforward, which was great. Let's talk a little bit about the fantastic agency that you built, NICE. Uh, in 2009, you built a fascinating agency called NICE with your partner, Peter Delukhanov, and you grew and managed the agency through two acquisitions. You were really early to mobile app development at that time, 2009, super, super early. You must have caught the crest of a wave. Discuss. Yeah, I mean, we were really lucky and, you know, Pete and I went on a phenomenal journey, um, you know, a lot a lot of really good times. I mean, look, time, timing's everything, um, right place, right time. I'd like to say it was um, good management, but it really was just really good timing. The only thing I'd say is, you know, when we started Nice Agency, which was probably six-ish months before that that wave of mobile bear in mind there'd been a few before then um but really that wave of mobile when the iphone 3gs launched the ipad launched the mm. app store launched and obviously android wasn't far behind them at that point mm. um it was really really good timing for us because we'd set the business up to design and build and deliver strategy around um rich internet applications or rears as they were called at the time mm. using like super trendy tech like Adobe Flex and Air for browser and web applications, Microsoft Silverlight and WPF, again, for browser and desktop applications. But we were, you know, we were always intended to be genuine product development. You know, we weren't a digital agency chucking a CMS-driven website together. You know, we were like, enterprise engineers building proper software. Hmm. So when the mobile platforms really came forward, it was a logical transition for us because architecturally they were all very similar um, to building a product it's just a different form factor and a slightly different technology set so we adapted to that incredibly well and because of our pedigree 
building stock trading applications or dealing platforms for some of the world's largest um, kind of banks and investment houses, albeit only for a few months. Um, with our kind of history and pedigree, we actually moved very quickly into building some large-scale mobile-first products. What do they say? Luck is when preparation meets opportunity. And it seems as though you had positioned yourself to take advantage of the luck that came through the mobile app kind of revolution in 2009 because of your previous background. Really fascinating. So so talk us through what that first year looked like then. Maybe not even the first year, but when you identified that, hey, this mobile app thing is a huge opportunity and it can really sort of accelerate our, our business. How exciting was that for you at that time? What what did those first few months or sort of first couple of years look like? Mm-hmm. How fast did you grow? Yeah, talk us through that. I mean, the, the first year was a roller coaster, um, you know, in a really good way. You know, mobile came around, brands pretty quickly got to realizing that they needed to be in that kind of space. And, you know, the first few mobile projects, we had to buy our way into them. You know, like with everything, you need to kind of show capability. And we did that. So we worked on some very weird, wide and varied mobile applications up until the point where um, not long into that year, we got the opportunity to have a chat with Channel 4. Uh, obviously, they had 4OD on their .com platform. And uh, we got introduced through a partner of ours um, who were handling the um, online kind of video CMS. And, you know, they said, uh, look, can you build mobile apps? And we said, yes, we can. This is how we go about it. And we kind of ticked the technical credentials pretty quickly. And um, the head of design got involved, um, a wonderful guy called Stephen Hardingham, who's since retired. And he was like, well, can you design too? And I said, well, yeah, of course we can. You know, we're kind of full service offering, you know, strategy design development. And again, we went through some design um, rigor. And yeah, they, they turned around and said, cool. Will uh, you guys have won it? Come and build the first version of 4D on the iPad. Amazing. And um, yeah, I mean that was genuinely transformational. You know, if you get the opportunity to work with Channel Four anyway on anything, on anything, you know, it's a right. transformational thing. I mean, it's such a wonderful sure. brand. But you know, we we built the the absolute showcase for them. You know, because that was the competitor to BBC's iPlayer. Amazing. You know, and and we were out there early with it, and uh, you know, technically it was incredibly challenging. Because, you know, today everything is in the SDK. You know, you've got video security, video playback, video player. We were handcrafting all of this stuff, hmm. like in the Wild West, because no one knew what they were doing. Sure. But, I mean, that was awesome. And that really shaped the foundation for the business moving forward. Fantastic. And then subsequently, how did the business grow over the next few years? Just talk us through that. I mean, relatively organically, you know, we we built the business. We built a sustainable pipeline. We worked hard to keep clients happy, so they kept coming back. We did well through referrals. You know, we also knew how to get ourselves out there. I mean, ironically, you know, we always quote this kind of mobile's best kept secret in some respects. But, you know, we were out there speaking to people all over the place, you know, building a relationship, building a rapport. And, you know, that was really, you know, part of the secret to our success. I mean, obviously, we were delivering quality product as well. You know, you know, I don't think you get anywhere if you're delivering shit. Mm. You know, so we had a good product. We had a, a really kind of, quote, nice sales approach. <laughs> you know, we weren't aggressive in any shape or form. We were quite passive in some respects in the way that we went about building relationships. But that just gained 
kind of exponential momentum, you know, year after year after year. And it really helped us grow a phenomenal business. Hmm. We'll come back to your nice sales approach in a moment because you've got a really, some, some really fascinating ideas around sort of slow growth and slow business development, which I think is absolutely fascinating. But talk us through sort of where mobile, where mobile is today. 2020, the days of companies building mobile apps and then just sort of having them in, in the app store really long gone. Engagement on mobile apps generally have fallen quite significantly. I think there are only a handful of apps that people tend to use on a regular basis. The euphoria and the excitement of those early days have, have really shifted. Talk about what the landscape for the mobile phone looks like today and sort of where are we going? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, mobile... You know, we've kind of gone through that curve where everyone wanted a mobile app. Now it's kind of hygiene, you know, and I think the way that brands think about engaging with their consumers either should be like this or um, they're already kind of cracked it. And it's much more about the micro interaction. You know, you've got to kind of assume that you're not going to be a destination for them. And you've got to make sure that your brand can surface in many other places, you know, so it's much more of an ecosystem play where yes you know a mobile app and a website or multiple like a portfolio of mobile apps you know wearable tech voice-based tech you know whatever it may be it needs to be much more kind of omnipresent to ensure that people get cut through you're absolutely right you know and i'm a a sucker for this as well you know you see an application you know it's advertised on instagram whatever it is you download it use it once Mm. it either sits there or maybe you might remember to delete it Mm. The mobile landscape is just not what it was now, you know, and I think, um, you know, people are kind of getting over that. And I actually think that mobile web is much more important than mobile app. But, you know, it's about catering for everyone in your kind of customer audience. Hmm. Some people will want the app or maybe want the app for certain things. And, you know, if they remember you or see you through some form of advertising, they might go straight to the browser. But things are different. I mean, everyone was so like seriously focused about building a mobile app it was like you know sticking a flag in the sand like yeah we've got a mobile app so we're cool but it's not like that anymore sure really interesting fast forward a few years and then Karmarama come knocking looking to acquire you what were they looking for that they didn't already have themselves and why did it make sense for you to sell at the time i mean we 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 weren't really looking to go down the the acquisition route and the the thing with Karmarama is it just happened beautifully and organically, um, which is kind of the way that we went about our business to date. And um, we actually co-pitched on a piece of work because they didn't really have the the deeper digital platform expertise at the time. You know, they were very good kind of from a digital creative and a digital comms perspective, but they didn't really uh, have the capability to build, you know, evergreen utility-based applications that sit in the middle of the user's customer journey or kind of customer experience Hmm. so we pitched we won everyone really enjoyed the process i mean it was a really short sharp engagement you know we all worked kind of crazy hours and every day in the weekend but it didn't really feel like work and um i mean the rest history i mean the conversation just evolved pretty quickly into you know what's the direction travel for your business um what do you think about calm rama and honestly i mean it was a it was a match made in heaven Hmm. Culturally, we were just already so aligned just naturally. Um, you know, the way that the kind of ethos around what goes around comes around, that kind of karmic loop was very us, you know, and it sounds very hippie, but it certainly wasn't supposed to be hippie, but it's just a, a really good attitude to have. 
there's a no wankers hiring policy um, <laughs> to keep out, you know, all the usual kind of riffraff and knobhead right. that exist in the creative industry. Sure. Um, you know, and it meant that we we hired good people. And like I said, the rest history, it just, it just kind of felt right. And it all came together beautifully. Hmm. Sometimes when a company acquires a, another, there's a fear from the company that's being acquired that the acquiring company would dominate their culture and change their culture and change the way that they operate. But that wasn't really a, a concern for you because you were so sort of aligned from the beginning. I, I, and I guess you understood that because you had this organic relationship that was built up over over time. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely true. And I'm not going to suggest that, you know, any of our staff didn't have concerns because you just don't know and you know no one myself and peter at that point in in the business had been through an acquisition and you just don't know what's going to happen sure um but you've got to trust in the people that you know you're going into business with effectively Mm. and we didn't have any problems it was perfect brilliant you subsequently became managing director of the creative products division what does the managing director of the creative products division do Delegates everything. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we, we retained... Broken like a true managing director. <laughs> yeah. Um, we uh, we kept a nice brand for quite some time, and it wasn't really up until kind of later in that journey that we decided to drop the nice brand and did a bit of a reorg, and, you know, nice agency became creative products as a, as a discipline within Karmarama, which is totally the right thing to do because uh, it's just confusing you know, with a kind of a multi-layered brand architecture and it just made more sense. Um, what we, what, what did I do? What does the manager director do? I mean, you know, ultimately, um, you know, I've always been kind of front of house, so clients and new business. So, you know, my role was to do that, um, you know, but really my, my main role was about building a leadership team. Um, you know, I had a 12-person leadership team with me by this point and, you know, empowering them given them the autonomy, given them the opportunity to go and do it, you know, which is great for me because then I can cut away all the kind of the, the lower level operational stuff. Um, you know, I can just focus on the stuff that's really important uh, to me in terms of my growth. But, you know, it gives other people the opportunity to have a go at the business as well. And, you know, those people were top of the game and had absolutely earned that opportunity. And it was really nice to be able to give them the keys to the kingdom. Hmm, really interesting. So then fast forward uh, a few more years and the acquirer becomes the acquired. Uh, so Kamarama were then acquired by Accenture Interactive. What was it being what was it like being absorbed into that mothership? Um I mean that was that was a, a whole new world. I mean, you know, we were going from like 400 people or whatever it was in Kamarama to 400,000. I think it was actually probably closer to 500,000 by the end of Amazing. it. Amazing. It's just enormous. Half a million people. You just can't you can't quantify the scale. It's just boggles the mind. But yeah. it was, you know, again, you know, a great opportunity. They um were very sensitive lovers, let's say. You know, they <laughs> they knew what they were looking to buy. And, you know, a big part of that was the culture. And um they didn't want to mess around with it you know, and kind of quote Brian Whipple, it's like culture of cultures because there's so many now parts of that business. I mean, obviously we kind of followed Fjord in, which happened a few years before, you know, they got the monkeys over in Australia and a few, well, not a few, a load of other acquisitions, which I can't even remember the names of. Obviously more recently, Droga 5, you know, they are a serious powerhouse. Yeah. Serious powerhouse. 
buying everybody now. Uh, they're, they're buying the right people. They're definitely buying the right people. Um, you know, to close that to close that gap that they've got, and um, probably some of the best people that I've ever worked with in Accenture. I mean, the people in there are just like super super smart. But you know, there's more process because it's a bigger organization. You know, and um, you you've got to account for that when you start to get into playing with um, businesses that are that big. So, so what was that like then? I mean, I would imagine that working in an organization like Accenture, super structured processes for everything, very often I would imagine quite hard to get things done quickly in the way that you would like to. You've come from working in creative businesses all your life and small and nimble startupy sort of uh, type businesses who are used to pivoting on a dime and sort of moving very quickly. How different was it working in an organization that is an oil tanker essentially? that manages their brand reputation very carefully and it's often quite difficult to make decisions quickly yeah it's harder you know it's harder and and just to do the nature of the beast you know there's more people involved you know so what becomes very simple decision making process or a very very flat hierarchy you know reported into um ben bilbo who's the ceo of Rama, that kind of changed pretty quickly um, because it's a big organization and like everything counts. So the matrix model then starts to get a bit more complicated because, you know, especially post acquisition, you've got a couple of people who head up, you know, your local territory who are probably responsible for the deal, obviously being really interested in some of the bigger stuff that you're doing. And then you've got people, you know, if you're starting to talk to a big account because we're talking global accounts now, um, you know, you can't just walk into those accounts without someone in a bigger business being involved in it in some shape or form. So they're obviously interested. And then you've got kind of specialism horizontals, you know, be it finance or uh, media and technology or a specific technology type or whatever it may be that may be interested and want to get involved. And it becomes a big web, actually, mm. of conversations and decisioning and those sorts of things and you know just naturally it does slow things down a little bit um not saying it's wrong um you know you can't really um ever question the results that they've delivered um you know it is a brilliant business but it just means that you've got to operate very differently um rather than you know one or two people making a really quick decision it just requires a little bit more of a methodology and a methodical approach to make sure that everyone's on board and you've got to get everyone behind your agenda. Hmm. Let's talk about your other entrepreneurship activities because there are many other things that you have done after you left Karmarama. Um, so you left Karmarama in, in 2018 and then in 2020, you started four things, it looks like to me anyway. So you're the founder of Hotspots, uh, you founded Vaunt, uh, a beauty brand with a range of f- fragrances for everyone. You're the, also the founder of Hoo-Ha, an online beauty tech platform. You're the chief growth officer at the Zeitgeist and chief growth officer at Territory Studio as well, who we said at the top of sh- the show w- were responsible for the Marvel cin- Cinematic Universe. When do you find time to sleep? Um, I, I, I mean, I need my sleep, first and foremost. Um <laughs> But I'm early to bed, early to rise, you know. Mm. So I, I know my body and I know when I'm going to get the best out of it. What time do you wake up, by the way? I'm I'm definitely up by and working close to five. I'm up at five and probably working not long. Up at five. five. Amazing. And you go to um, bed at what time? Yeah, but I mean, I'll, I'll be asleep at 9 p.m. You know, so I'm still getting my hours in. Yeah. Um, I just kind of do, I've done that time shift because it works better for me. 
sure you know working with pete he was always a night owl and i was always a um a morning lark so um it, it worked pretty well actually and mm. um you know i just organized myself the way that i know that i'm going to get the best out of me mm. makes sense it seems as though there are a lot of things that are keeping keeping you busy what are the things that you're most excited about right now i think right now and we've, we've kind of hit some delays unfortunately because of covid and you know whatnot but let's not go into that but the thing i'm most excited about is hoo-ha um, which is the the online retail um, beauty tech platform hmm. and um it's kind of the logical kind of journey on from vaunt which was the perfume brand mm-hmm. so we started vaunt it was kind of our our reason myself and my partner lorenzo as our reason for like getting out of corporate because he was uh, in a senior role at sapient and obviously i was in accenture by this point and um i'd got so far away from making stuff that i was kind of missing it mm. and he and i have always had a passion for kind of niche perfumes and non-mainstream stuff like calme de garçon which was kind of mm. the niche market pretty early and um we just said fuck it let's go and start a perfume brand and obviously that was after sitting in my garden with a couple of cups of coffee working through a list of things that we should and shouldn't do <laughs> but um you know in one of the things like oh should we do a fashion brand and i was like well we definitely don't have a face for a fashion brand mate so <laughs> maybe we'll stick to perfume where we can just hide behind the bowl sure, and, sure. and it was just in- influencers that's the that's the trick <laughs> well, i mean I, I don't think i'd put myself in that camp um <laughs> usually under the influence rather than, <laughs> um, you know, and we looked into it and, you know, it's surprisingly easy to go and make a perfume. Actually. Um, mm. We went and did a course. We consumed that course super quick. We found a perfumer off the back of it who we had a good rapport with. I mean, she's like wonderfully, beautifully bonkers. Um, and, you know, she translated what was in our brains into the three perfumes that we have on Vaunt, huh. which is uh, monomaniac, the optimist and equals 11. Love it. Um, you know, like I said, I mean, there's, there's something in there for everyone, and there's some stuff in there that most people hate as well. But it was just a fun process. But learning about that industry was like genuinely amazing, and you know, kind of applying everything that I'd learned, you know, in in my career to date in terms of understanding product, understanding sales, growth, consumers, behaviors. We really realized that um, you know the rise of um, craft or artisanal perfume is, is massively underserviced. But oddly, you know, un- unlike craft beer and gin and coffee, which has had it this kind of huge wave of interest, which attracted more and more and more producers or coffee shops or whatever it may be. Mm. Oddly, the world of perfume, like all of the producers are there. There are hundreds, like countless lists of like amazing perfumes you've never heard of. Mm-hmm. Like Paul Emois, which is, you know, really quite accessible perfume. And it's okay, this one's out of Paris. That's, you know, potentially a bit wanky, but I mean, the, the perfumes are just like off the chart. They're amazing. And you've got this wonderful woman um, who's half Ghana and half Swedish, a girl called Maya Naj, who's out of Hackney. And I mean, she makes probably one of the best perfumes I've ever, ever tried in my life. Amazing. And it's like 60 quid for 50 mil. It's um, it's absolutely brilliant. Anyway, the whole What's point... What's it called? <laughs> Let me get the name of it. I'll, I'll send you the link. Send it to she, me. She, yeah. The brand's called Maya Naj. It's like N-J-I-E, I think you spell the surname. But if you search um, Nordic Cedar Perfume, um, okay. that's my favorite of hers, actually. Uh, okay. You'll, you'll check it out. And she okay. hand makes everything. She's super, super talent. Anyway, the, the realization was, you know, as with Vaughn, like we just didn't have, there was no kind of industry to supporting getting this brilliant quality product into the hands of people who 
um, are intimidated to go into the Selfridges perfume section mm. because the sales staff are so snooty and aggressive. Sure. And if you don't know what you're looking for, actually, most of them don't give a shit. And, you know, that really annoyed us. I mean, Liberty's different. You know, Liberty staff are really good um, at kind of educating. But most people just don't want to go in because it's it's super, super intimidating, mm. um, no matter how confident you are, you know. And obviously online is, you know, you can't smell the internet. A minefield. You yeah. can't smell the internet. So why so. would I risk spending 70 quid on something I've never heard before? <laughs> good point. Possibly double what I'd normally pay for you know, whatever it is, 212 that you get from Boots. And it's like, why am I going to go through that risk? Yeah. Porter, Mr. Porter and Netta Porter have obviously done a good job of trying to educate, but that's obviously they've um, they've sold perfume online, you know, the Lalabos of the world, the 1969s, the Byridos, mm. just because of the cachet of the brand and the fact that their average basket size is so high that, you know, a 90-pound bottle of perfume is almost discretionary. Just like whack it in. So, you know, our mission was to transform that. And, you know, we we will launch at the turn of the year with um, a very, very differentiated brand. Um, You know, the tone of voice is much more kind of tongue in cheek, uh, pokey. You know, we kind of quote that we're going to take the bullshit out of the perfume industry. And um, we're also launching with a subscription package as well, you know, to help people more easily get into the world of niche perfume because there's some really good stuff out there. I'm sat with like 50 different samples in front of me right now. And, um, you know, I think from a growth perspective, you know, this this kind of dials up on the product side of things, like really get excited about the product, but then start applying those methodologies to selling this stuff, building relationships, um, but in a kind of virtual environment. That is super fascinating. I mean, the perfume industry is one that's needed to be disrupted and the experience needed to be improved for a very long time it's really fascinating what you're doing there and the insights that you've captured through going through the process of creating your own perfume where you've uncovered all of these other fantastic products is really fascinating so essentially becoming you'd like to become a marketplace for these undiscovered perfume brands yeah exactly really fascinating exactly you can buy a full bottle if you wish when you buy a full bottle you get a sample of it also so you can test the sample, wear it on your skin because every perfume reacts differently to everybody. And if you don't like it, just don't open the full bottle and send it back. Or obviously you can pick up a subscription package, which is, you know, price TBC, but in the range of like £12 per month. And every month you get a 12 ml vial of something extra special through your door to have a play with. Mm-hmm. And you know, you're not going to like them all. You know, I don't like all of them, but, you know, everyone's taste in perfume is very individual. That's really interesting. So just final final point on this, but my um for my birthday, my fiance bought me some Lalabo who who you mentioned nice. earlier. Which one? Beautiful sense. Oh, Gordon Bennett. She bought me the um the tester set and then oh, I nice. chose one of the five of the tester set. I can't nice. I don't remember which which Very name good. now. But beautiful uh, cedar and wood and beautiful scents that I've never really sort of come across before. Mm-hmm. But I guess that's an example of I'm usually more of your mainstream uh, sort of uh, fragrances. Uh, Hugo Boss, uh, Jean-Paul Gaultier, go down the list. I generally don't come across niche, really artisanal, interesting brands of perfumes that I would, you know, that I would generally love to get behind. So I really uh, I'm interested in sort of it's really exciting sort of what you're doing around sort of democratizing that and giving access to more people because I'd never come across 
at such small independent brands before. Exactly. It's about making it accessible, right? You know, the price point for the subscription model is low. I mean, considering the amount of perfume you're getting, it's incredibly low and cost. I mean, 12 mil, um, you know, for 12 quid. I mean, that'll that'll last you quite a long time. Mm. Um, you know, but even in, th- in terms of the taxonomy of the website, you know, the language, the tone of voice, the fact that we're dropping the notes pyramid, because I mean, I don't even know what some of these things smell like. You look at a notes pyramid on the back of a bottle, and it's like, oh, the top note is silver musk and white cedar. I'm like, what the yeah. hell do they smell? I've got no idea. I don't even know what these words are. You know, and that's just not helpful to anyone. You know, so our taxonomy on our taxonomy on our sites like work safe, out out, date night. You know. <laughs> And it's Love not it. to devalue the quality of the product. It's just about making it human in the end of the yeah. day. Yeah. Really fascinating. Exciting to see how that develops. Let, let's talk a little bit about slow selling. So this is your yeah, methodology passion. or yeah. your passion, one of your other passions. So you you won first direct in Channel 4, as you said, when you were at Nice Nice Agency, where you were talking about Channel 4, you didn't mention first direct, but another huge win for you at mm. the time when you were with Nice how did you win those clients and how does that form the basis of your approach to winning new business? Yeah, I mean, f- First Direct took, I haven't worked out the exact like time frame, but it was like four years. It took us four years to get in there. Amazing. And, you know, most people just give up. Like, you know, you send a few emails and it's like, oh, well, they're not interested. Well, I mean, the, the chances of them having a brief or the chances of them reading your email along all of the other bloody million emails mm. that they're probably also getting either on LinkedIn or in their inbox, or whatever, is like so small. So why give up so quick? I mean, you know, the chances of them having a brief is just minute at that time. You know, so the whole the whole premise of slow selling is is just that. Take your time. You don't need that deal. You know, as a as a primary principle, you don't need this deal. Build a relationship. Build the trust. Show that you give a shit about their brand, always add value. So give, don't expect to get. And a lot of the time it pays off. You know, it's not going to solve a problem that you've got in your pipeline one, two, three months away, but it will build a much more sustainable business in the long run. And the accounts that you attract will turn into accounts as long as you service them properly. You know, you haven't bought something from someone in a distressed environment where you've kind of sales pressured them into oh god i've got to buy something either to shut this guy up or you know if i give them this maybe they'll leave me alone and i can pass them on Mm. to my team who can kind of handle them that's not good i mean Mm. you know i think kind of when we did the pre-chat about this i like jokingly made the fillet steak reference (laughs) in terms of the way that you should cook a steak i mean you don't cook it too hard too fast and then just like whack it on a plate sure yeah you gotta look after it and you gotta let it rest and you know, you've got to give it some care and attention. And the same goes for sales. No one wants to be sold to in this planet. Mm. No one waits for that phone call coming through going, yeah, do you fancy a dot, dot, dot? Or, you know, do you want to? I've been ready? waiting for you to sell to me. I've been waiting. I've been right. waiting. Thank God. I've been waiting <laughs> thank, four thank months God you for called. you to me. Thank you so much. I've not done anything else in the last right. four months because I've been waiting for your call. Sure. It just doesn't happen. Mm. Ever. And... I think you just got to treat, you know, people that you're trying to sell to with a little bit more respect, like you would in any walk of life, you know, take the time to learn about them, give rather than get. So offer value wherever you can. And look, you know what, it might not, it might not turn into anything. It may not, but you've probably built a good connection 
and you know maybe down the line they move roles and they've got an opportunity to work with you but building relationships and building a much more stable pipeline is going to affect business in a much more positive way and i agree with what you're saying and i'm sure a lot of people listening will do agree conceptually with the idea that you need to add value over time and build a relationship and eventually that will lead to work as you know the case with um channel four and first direct yeah four years is a, is a very long time to wait though i hear people asking when you've got targets monthly or quarterly how do you satisfy that short-term requirement of bringing in revenue now versus the longer term big business sort of bigger wins yeah i mean look any any sales strategy is not just one thing you know so i completely appreciate that you know especially right now people are hurting from a sales targets perspective and you know it's not going to fix something overnight so you know one of the strategies that you should employ should be slow selling let's try and do some stuff at scale so we've got a broad and deep pipeline of lots of these slow conversations going and obviously the more scale you add to it because sales is basically just a numbers game then the chances are that there may be some faster things in there and you can use a couple of different gears some of these ops might go a little bit faster some of them will go a bit slower that's just one strategy you know if you've got a real problem next month in your pipeline you've got a gap i mean the only place you can go is existing clients you know, you're never going to manage to phone someone up and go, yeah, can do you want to buy one of these things? I've got something starting in two weeks. I mean, the chance sure. is so low. Yeah. So you got a problem next month, you need to be talking to your existing clients. Hmm. Be human with them. We just had a project cancel. You know, we've got a gap for, you know, a couple of weeks. We could maybe fit in like a couple of sprints worth of um, design thinking or innovation or strategic thinking, whatever it is. We'll do you a deal on it. You know, they're the kind of strategies that you need to be employing to do the shorter term stuff. Mm. And, um, you know, you've just got to start somewhere. And if you, again, if you do the lead gen stuff with the right attitude at scale, some of this stuff will move faster. Mm. Yeah. So you've got some super fast stuff, you've got some slower stuff and you've got some really slow stuff. And, uh, you know, if, if you haven't already got a pipeline, if someone's listened to this today going, yeah, okay, well, I'll start doing this today, which you should, you know, you're probably effed if you haven't got a pipeline that you can start to try and focus on in the middle ground to move opportunities through things that have been qualified. I mean, if you've got no pipeline today, you're in trouble. Makes a lot of sense to me. Sounds like there's a there's a book in that for you, slow selling. Well, there is a book in there. <laughs> <laughs> funny you should funny you should say, say Nathan. That. I'm not going to plug it. I'm not going to plug it. Um, right. Yeah, I mean, working titles, uh, the growth agenda. And um, mm. it kind of, you know, the, the slow selling stuff comes to the DNA of everything that we do, but it's it's quite, um, I don't want to use that word academic, but it's quite practical in terms of the recommendations and techniques and tactics that you can deploy. Mm. Um, so I'm hoping to finish that this year. Um, mm. But uh, obviously, as you know, my um, second born arrives tomorrow. Oh, wow. Which is probably going to scupper everything. <laughs> Congratulate. How exciting. How's everyone feeling? How are you feeling? Yeah. How is your wife feeling? Well, good. Second time round. I think we we know what we didn't know. Yeah. Um, Not that there won't be any surprises. I know that. But, you know, I think we did it once. I'm sure we can do it again, even if I can't remember how to do it. How exciting. Yeah. Get get used to the sleepless nights again. Are you ready for that again? Oh, mate. No. (laughs) The the lack of sleep thing kills me. And I don't I don't do well without sleep. Yeah. Um, you know, some people are kind of superhuman from that perspective. I mean, I don't know how they do it, but um, that's going to be yeah. the hardest thing to deal with, I think. You know, assuming she's all fit and healthy. 
we're expecting ours soon. Thank you very much know, for the advice that you gave me. Yeah, 100 days brilliant. of darkness. 100 <laughs> days of darkness. Great. But, well, you know, it's um, the, the, the upside, in, which is hugely outweighs any downside. So you'll, you'll have a great time. Last question before we get into our favorite questions, Ryan. Uh, Territory Studio, how, do, how have we not talked about that? So they've made, they're responsible for, well, they were involved in the Marvel movies, Spider-Man, Ex Machina, Blade Runner 2049, just some fascinating, groundbreaking, iconic movies. What is your involvement with them and how are you helping the company? Yeah, it's a new role, actually. I'm the global chief growth officer. Um, they got uh, offices in in Europe here and obviously over in the US as well. And um, it actually kind of, I got the job. I, I actually interviewed um, uh, David, the founder, about a year ago for the podcast series I do. Huh. And, um, you know, it's just funny how these things go. So a little bit of slow selling yeah, unintentionally. But, you know, sure. I never thought that there'd be a role for me. But, um, you know, you never know. You never know. And, mm. you know, we kept in touch. And we had some beers. And then I got a, a message out of the blue from uh, the other founder, Nick, who's the CEO. And he said, look, we're looking at a growth role. Do you want to put your name in the hat? And I was like, yes, because I'm an enormous geek and an enormous Marvel fan. For sure. And why wouldn't I want to do that? Yeah. And we just had yeah. a show and tell with the San Francisco office last night. So it was a bit of a late finish. Oh, and um, I can't disclose the stuff that we're, we're working on. But, um, you know, it's just an hour. You can't apart. dangle that carrot in front I of us and not I tell us. I can't. I can't. Oh. I'd love to. There's a very, very famous game in there. Um and there's some incredible work in automotive as well and it's just you know i literally my my jaw was just like (laughs) dropped it just stayed dropped for like an hour and a half the talent in that business is just like amazing you know but it's back to like some form of craft you know they make really good work and um it just so happens it's like for stuff that kind of really takes a lot of buttons for me um you know being the marvel kind of geeky stuff as well and um the thing is, it's like they've got an, an incredible business already and, you know, they're looking to accelerate that, you know, so it comes back to like everything that I've kind of been shaping uh, my career towards, which is around growth, mm. you know, understanding the product and the and the genuine benefits to the consumer, be that obviously B2B buy or whatever it is, understanding how you can genuinely um, intertwine sales and marketing, because I hate sales and I hate marketing, if I'm being really <laughs> honest. Um, okay. because I think both are like incredibly ineffective unless they work together right. and surprising how few businesses properly weave those things together. Um, obviously a bit of a look at the finance, but we've got a wonderful finance director who um, means that I don't have to get too, too bogged down the detail. And I've got a wonderful team, you know, globally um, that really, really know their stuff. Mm. Um, you know, so a little bit of nudging here and there, we're going through value proposition design at the moment, um, then we're going to get into you know the variety of different go-to-market strategies that we need to design, and we're going to go and smash it. We're going to go and smash it, and we're going to go into a variety of different industries outside of film, movie, and obviously kind of in the entertainment space. And yeah, no one's going to see us coming, and it'd be very exciting. Well, watch this space. I wish we had more time to get into that in more detail. You'll have to come back on the show. We'll talk about that uh, later. When your book is out as well, we'll do another one. Um, You will wait for the book and I can plug it hard. (laughs) Definitely. Let's get into everyone's favorite questions. These are the questions that I ask all of my guests. So I'm really excited to ask you some of these as well. Um, Start with a nice, easy one. 
tell us about a time when you failed and what you learned from the experience. <laughs> um, I mean, I've failed a lot over the years. <laughs> um, you know, I think that's the best. Yeah, I'm going to really geek out, but it's like, you know, that famous Batman quote is like, why do we fall, Bruce, so we can get back up again? Uh, <laughs> I, told, I told you I was a geek. So uh, I, I think kind of, you know, just to put a little bit of humor into it, the, the biggest fail I've ever had is um, I was trying to get into, um, this is like years ago, and it was nice agency, trying to get into a big um, entertainment business. Um, and they were producing uh, a really, really sexy, cool, geeky um trilogy of movies and we came up with this idea about this kind of um community kind of second screen experience and it was we'd spent loads of time concepting it and i just couldn't pin the marketing director down and uh eventually she came back obviously slow selling right eventually she came back and said look all right fine let's hear it we'll set up a call can you do this date this time because that's all i've got and i was like oh, shit i'm gonna be on holiday but actually with the time zone, the time worked pretty well. So yeah, let's mm -hmm. definitely do it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I got up, went for a run, came back, jumped in the pool, uh, realized that I ran out of time, which is very rare for me actually, but I hadn't planned properly and I ran out of time. So I literally had to jump out the pool, run to my laptop to dial into the call. And as I was opening my laptop and getting settled, she called me and I just kind of didn't really pay enough attention and I just hit the accept call button, but mm. it was a video call oh, rather no. than a, um, oh, no. a call call. And obviously this is like, I don't know what year it was, 2011. I mean, okay. not everyone did video. It wasn't like now, like it wasn't <laughs> video calls are rare, right? Especially to be sprung on with a video call. And sure. I was sat there in a reverse newsreader situation because I was wearing something on the bottom, just not on the top. And I was like <laughs> still damp from the pool. And basically there's this kind of panel of 15 predominantly no. women, senior marketeers. And I was just like, no. I'm fucked. <laughs> so no. we didn't get that gig. Um, you didn't? Of course not. <laughs> No, I mean, no one wants to see me without one. I mean, seriously, it's not, it's not good. Um, oh, that's funny. You, you know, so uh, there's lessons there, you know. One, <laughs> did you be doing stuff on holiday? You know, how desperate, yeah. how desperate was I? Should I have pushed back? I mean, all of these things go through your mind. Yeah. You know, but when you go into business, you kind of, you can get a little bit blinded by growth sometimes. Sure. And you think you're doing the right thing as an entrepreneur by just doing everything all the time. And actually, yeah. it really doesn't pay off. It doesn't pay off. That's a great one. Thank you for that. Tell us about some of your early mentors who influenced the way that you think about growth, the way you think about new business, marketing. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've got to kind of say, you know, I've been really fortunate to have some brilliant peers around me um, who are all friends, you know. you got Tarek Nazir uh, from Think, who's CEO and founder, but obviously now they kind of sit within EPAM kind of post-acquisition um you know he and i had a, a, a whale of a time and he was just kind of his standards were so high um you know peter lukanov my partner at nice agency i mean we were kind of yin and yang and um you know hopefully i've bestowed some of my kind of um more laid back approaches um but he's got some kind of he's, he's a very very organized and very precise guy and I, I love him for that you know so picked up so much from him Spencer Gallagher, good friend of mine, um, runs Cactus, kind of the agency growth experts, mm -hmm. um, you know, kind of the world's biggest cheerleader. You know, he just he's so positive and optimistic. 
And um, I think that just goes such a long way. You know, Graham Darracourt, who's, um, you know, in DPC, now post a couple of acquisitions himself, you know, not taking things too seriously. Um, you know, I've been, I've been so fortunate to have, like, really great people around me um, that you kind of take the best bits and the bits, of, bits that are right for you. And even if you don't necessarily think that you want to be that kind of precise or organized, then you can kind of pick those skills up and a lot of respect for, for those people. But, you know, also, you know, mentorship doesn't have to kind of be from people who are on a level or more experienced, you know, I, I've learned a lot of people, lo- a lot from people that I've actually managed, um, mm. you know, so my successes, you know, who took over the business at Kamarama when, I left, for example, learned a lot from those guys, you know, down to like account execs and PAs, you know, I think you just got to have the right attitude that you can learn something from everyone. Um, Mm. You know, even if, even your parents, even if you think it's not (laughs) your parents, it can always, they've always got something to teach you. (laughs) You know, I think you just got to have the right attitude and, you know, don't be up your own ass about learning stuff because you can learn something from, you know, a bus driver. Mm. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've achieved. You know, everyone's got value to add. Mm. Be a lifelong student. 100%. Tell us about some of your favorite books, fiction, nonfiction, marketing related, growth, whatever. Um, I'm going to say uh, Courier Magazine, actually. Courier Magazine? Courier Magazine. And okay. This, I mean, these guys, I think, how long have they been going for? Like a couple of years, maybe? Mm-hmm. I'm looking at issue 37. Right, and they publish, I think, once a month. Mm-hmm. Um, stories of modern business. I mean, that that's where business is at. You know, it's not contrived. It's not stuffy view of business. It's not Harvard Business Review. Mm. It's probably the best source of regular content that I want to consume. Really? 100%. 100%. Oh. Um, in a do, magazine format. It's in a magazine format. But That's they do amazing. events and they do like online okay. learning and events and workshops and there's a whole there's a whole thing behind it. Yeah. But honestly, if you don't subscribe to Courier, you are missing out. That is the greatest pitch, um, and I'll be subscribing at the end of this interview. Brilliant. Okay, I'm just checking them out now. They look great. Love the design. Thank you for that. Um, Amazon Prime or Netflix? What are you watching or streaming these days? That's good. Uh, I'm, I'm definitely Netflix. Um, there's some good stuff on Prime, but I just really struggle um, with the UI. I just really struggle yes. with it. Yes. Why you know, have Amazon uh, not gotten that right? That's the only I thing. Know. I don't know. Like, it, I mean, net, Netflix obviously hasn't changed significantly recently, but it's just, I mean, I use Apple TV a lot to consume content, and I do a lot of it. It's just so, so clunky. So um, bad. So bad. But there's some great stuff on there. Just, you know, the, the boys. I've not watched the boys. So the, good. The superhero get in, thing. Get into it. I'm on but, um, episode you know, three I, now. I, it looks so good. I mean, I've got to get a pass from the wife to watch it, unfortunately. Um, it's different when it's like the British Bake Off. But um, <laughs> <laughs> it's different when I want to watch what I want to watch. Uh, but I do like the yeah. Bake Off. Um, Netflix, you know what I found, right? There's some. There's a really good animated reboot of um, Transformers, War on Cybertron. Okay. Uh, that sounds really geeky, but it does sound. Really I geeky. am a geek. And it's, <laughs> you actually, said it's actually really good. It's actually really good in there. Okay, what is it called? Sorry, let me check it out on IMDb. It's called War on Cybertron. War so definitely check that out. On... And um, yeah, the wife's just made me watch Below Deck. 
which What's is that? basically a reality. It's like Love Island, kind of, on a yacht, and it follows the staff around. And this doesn't. <laughs> this is not a good pitch, and it's not a good image for me. But I'm going to be really honest. Like, it's actually quite addictive. <laughs> Yeah. That's going out to everyone now. That's going to live for well, you know, the internet. I am. Um, I'm trying to be more transparent, and uh, <laughs> I, I am a self-admitted geek. So there, there you, you are. go. Live your truth. <laughs> um, what advice would you give to a young person or millennial who says that they want to start their career in an agency or start a, a new agency? Uh, I'd say just start is kind of the quote. Um, you know, if you sit and sit around and be all academic about it and try and plan it and all this kind of stuff. You know, sometimes you just got to make that jump. You know, there's a lot of people out there who want to be entrepreneurs that will plan the, the death out of something. Mm. The point is, it's like, you want to set up an agency, we'll work out what it is you're going to sell and go and sell it. Mm. And as soon as you sold it, you've got a business or something, the start of a business. Um, mm. Just don't theorize, just get going, try and sell it and try and get it right, get it that way around because sales is the the key to everything really if you can prove that you can bring in revenue then you can optimize for profit later yeah but if you can if you can take cash off someone then Mm -hmm. you can work the rest out my favorite mark cuban quote is sales cures all (laughs) i love it it does which it really does it does really does um final question what do you know about growing a marketing agency today that you wish you knew at the very beginning of your career? Hmm. That's a really good question. Thank you. I mean, a, a shitload. <laughs> Cause I can't say that I knew a lot about it at the start. Um, an obvious one is good people, you know, mm. good people are going to make it work. Um, I think the, I think a lot of people, and I would put myself in this camp at the start of my journey, get overly obsessed about the deal that is in front of them at any one time. And, you know, it goes back to that kind of slow seller methodology. It's like, look, go broad and deep. You need to be talking to 10 or 20 times more people than you realize you do. And you've really got to really, really invest in those relationships. They're not just contacts that you send a, look, this is what we do. Would you like to buy it? message to, Mm. you know, you've really, really got to build those relationships and build that network. Obvious. Mm. It is obvious, but, the amount of people that I come across that actually don't do it, they think they're doing it, but it's just a veneer of what they should be doing. Mm. Um, that is a major thing, a major thing. I'll definitely pass that knowledge back in a DeLorean. <laughs> great advice, great advice. Ryan, thank you so much for doing this. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Really, really appreciate being on the show. Thanks for, for listening to my waffle for the last 55 minutes. <laughs> We have been speaking with Ryan Hall. He is the former co-founder of NICE and the chief growth officer of the Zeitgeist. If you enjoyed this conversation, then head over to Apple Podcasts where you can listen to over 99 such conversations we've had now with world-class leaders in sales and marketing. Thank you for all your feedback and suggestions on LinkedIn and email. Write to me at Nathan at agencyfieldmasters.com. Please head over to iTunes and give us a review. Follow me on Twitter at Nathan Annie Barber. We would be unable to do this show without our very own deal masters. Ahmed Ahmed is our editor. Chris Blauchek is our booker slash project manager. Marion Begum is our head of research. I'm Nathan Annie Barber. You've been listening to Agency Deal Masters. 
Stay tuned for our stellar interview next week with Tamara Littleton. She is the CEO of The Social Element, a global social media agency that has only about 300 people and turns over £10 million. Her story is a classic entrepreneurial one. She was an early pioneer in social media in the early 2000s, started from very humble beginnings being just a consultant, to now running what is one of the most respected social media agencies on the planet with clients like HSBC, Nissan and Diageo. If you're interested in what's happening now in social media, then you will find this conversation absolutely fascinating. It is quite a classic one. Everyone was doing startups. And I thought, this is my time. I'm going to go for it. The first few years definitely were very tough. We were working with the teams that built the first online communities. There was nothing else. Facebook hadn't started. Twitter hadn't started. But communities were starting to become a thing. That was when I first got the idea to start the company. It was such a pioneering time. We've grown from nothing to just shy of 10 million in revenue and about 300 people, which is sort of 90 staff and, and the rest uh, freelancers. So it's, it's grown and, and it's still independent, which I'm very proud of. I think it's going to be all right.